Father in heaven, we pause to thank you for your goodness, your mercy to us. We thank you, Lord, for bringing us through this day. And as we gather together here as a church family, whether we know others here or whether we don't, we thank you, Lord, for the commonality of faith that we can share and the purpose of coming here. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts. I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me. And I pray, Lord, that we may reflect upon your word this evening in a personal way. Bless us, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The sermon title tonight is entitled, He Says, She Says. I don't know about you, but growing up, I learned a phrase in school that we would sometimes repeat to other boys and girls on the playground. And it went something like this. Sticks and stones may break my bones. But, we would say, names will never hurt me. Now, I'm not here to talk on how that saying is actually not that true anyway. But what we would say when we'd say sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me, what we were trying to convey, the underlying message we were trying to convey was, I don't care what you say about me. That's what we're trying to say. I don't care what you say about me. You can say whatever you want about me, but I don't care. Today in life, we're kind of taught to not listen to some of the negative things that people may say about you. Have your own identity. Be sure in who you are, and don't let what others say about you form you. To be sure in yourself, to know where you come from, to know why you're here, and be sure in yourself, and don't let other people mold or shape you. I was reading a book recently, I posted a picture on Facebook, maybe you saw it, of, um, it's called The Insanity of God. If you've never read the book, it came out about two years ago, it's a fascinating by, I forget his name, I think it's Nick Ripkin. The first half of the book is his account of being a missionary in the country of Somalia right after their um, civil war of 1992. And it's just heart-wrenching as he describes what it was like to be literally one of a handful of Christians in the country. They could literally count them on one or two hands. What was it like to be a missionary in a country that's completely devoid of God or Christianity, or the God that we understand and know. The second half of his book describes how he then traveled to hundreds of churches, tens of countries around the world, and visited Christians in countries where they had been persecuted. And he just sat down with these Christians and interviewed them and got their stories. And some of the stories were just fascinating. He went to Russia. He went to the, the old Eastern Bloc countries. He went to China. He went to some of the Muslim countries in Southeast Asia. And he got story after story after story. And then he comes to his conclusions at the end of the book. But some of the stories were fascinating. And some of the, uh, the situations were really, really interesting. For example, he went to China. And he was visiting with the church there in China. And he was talking to them about persecution. 
Like people there didn't really have too much of a, of a problem with being persecuted. In fact, being persecuted was normal. And at least three times in the book when he's talking to people, he says to them, wow, these stories are amazing. You need to write it down. And they look back at him like, huh? He's like, you need to write these down. They're like, what are you on about? And then one man actually just took him to the window and said, the sun is rising up over the horizon there, isn't it? Yeah. He said, at home, do you write down that the sun rises every day in a journal? He said, we don't write down that we get persecuted for it's just normal. In China, he found out when he went there, you couldn't be a church leader in China unless you had been to prison. Nominating committee meets, uh, we like to nominate so-and-so to be a, a, a church leader. Has he been to prison yet? No. Sorry. He's not tested yet. You could only be a church leader if you'd served time, proving your commitment to the cause. Without prison time, you were just a girl or a boy. The stories that he wrote there in the book, though, it, it, it was people writing their stories, and one of the conclusions he came to was that the ability to witness, and this really resonated with me, the ability to witness does not depend upon the political system that someone lives under. He said, we in the West, we pray for people's freedom. Why? So they can be Laodicean like us? He says, they don't pray for freedom. They pray for obedience. We're here in the West thanking God for the freedom so that we can be Christian and no one knows we're Christian. See, they don't pray for freedom. They pray for obedience. And he says the one of the conclusions in the book was that the ability or the opportunity, rather, to witness does not depend on the political system that you are born under. Everyone has freedom to witness. It's just the consequences are different depending what country you live in. But everyone has the freedom granted by God to be a witness. The Christians in that book that I was reading about, though, had an experience where other people knew for sure. There was no question. They knew for sure that they were a Christian. There was no like, eh, I'm not quite sure, you know. Yeah, he's a nice kind of guy. Yeah, they're kind of friendly at work. So I don't know. Eh. No, everyone that was writing about, other people would know. Well, that's a question. And they were often a Christian in spite of all the situations around them. You see, we have been taught to be personally confident in what we say. And yesterday I said that, you know, as an Adventist, we should know why we're a Seventh-day Adventist. Amen. We should have personal confidence in our understanding of God's Word and know why we're a Christian or know why we come to church or we should know why we believe that Jesus is a divine being and part of the Godhead. We should know that. We should know why the seventh day is the Sabbath. 
we should know why the sanctuary was on earth, but was also a replica of what, was, what is sorry, in heaven. We should know that when the dead die, they don't go to heaven, but they go to the grave, and they await the resurrection. As a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, we should know these things. We should know why we are a Christian. And oftentimes, we, we turn to Bible characters, turn your Bible to the book of Daniel. Oftentimes, we turn to Bible characters that illustrate those traits of character, and we look at those Bible characters as people that we want to emulate in our lives. Daniel stands as a prime example of that. Daniel grew up in Jerusalem. There in Jerusalem, he would have gone to his, his nice church school, as we would say. He would grow up in a very protected environment. At the age of 15 or 16, his life was shattered. He was ripped from his home. Essentially, no parents for the rest of his life, becoming an orphan at the age of 15 or 16. He was taken to a foreign country after he had to walk 800 miles across the hot Arabian desert. As he gets to the foreign country, he's there in the center of the universe, sorry, center of the globe, the biggest city there. And as, you know, as you know, you read the story, the food spread out in front of them. They're about to eat. And the Bible tells us in Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8, that famous verse that we read, read so many times in church, it says, but Daniel did what? He purposed in his heart that he would not. He would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. And we look at this story and we say, Amen. And then we turn to our Seventh-day Adventist hymnal and we sing, Dare to be a Daniel. Should we dare to be like Daniel? Yes or no, church? Of course we should. And then if you go through Daniel's life, you can find Daniel in, in Daniel chapter 2. He, he's standing for God again. His life is on the line. He's about to get killed. And he goes into the king and he tells the king the meaning to the vision. And he tells him what it means as well. And the king's like, wow, you're amazing. Then you get to Daniel 3. Well, Daniel's not really in Daniel 3. The three Hebrew boys are in there. And then you go to Daniel 4. Nebuchadnezzar gets converted in Daniel 4. Written by Nebuchadnezzar. Then you get to Daniel 5 and Daniel 6, and at the end of Daniel's life. So in Daniel 1, you've got him as a 15-year-old, 16, maybe 17-year-old. In Daniel chapter 6, Daniel is now about 87 years old. So we've got the example of the beginning of his life, chapter 1, and then chapter 6, we have the end of his life. And in Daniel chapter 6, you have the story. You know the story. I don't need to recount it too much to you. What happens in Daniel 6? They want to frame Daniel. What empire are we living under now in Daniel 6? It's not Babylon anymore. It's Medo-Persia. So picture the scene. You know, you've had a change of emperor, but despite the change of emperor, the prime minister stays the same. Like that doesn't happen. That does not happen. That's like Donald Trump winning the American election, but keeping on Barack Obama's vice president as his vice president. Doesn't happen. It's like Jeremy Corbyn going to power and keeping Theresa May as his vice prime minister, whatever you call it here, deputy prime minister. Doesn't happen. And if that did happen under a Labour government, you can imagine what all the Labour MPs would think of the deputy prime minister from the other party. 
So Daniel in Daniel 6 is now the other party, the other empire, serving over the Persian Empire. You know the story, they try and frame him. And what happens? They can't frame him. Verse 10 says he knew the writing was signed. He goes home and prays three times a day. And then they go back to the king. Then they go back to the king. Say, king, we got Daniel. And then you come down to verse 15. It says, these men assembled unto the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that the law of the Medes and the Persians is that no decree nor statute which the king established may be changed. And verse 16 says, Then the king commanded, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. And the king spake and said to Daniel, What does the king say? The king says, Your God whom you serve continually, he will what? He will deliver you. He will deliver you. Turn to Exodus chapter, no. Turn to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 17. In the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 17, you have the famous story of David and what's his name? Goliath. When David sped across that stretch of land with his sling in his hand, a stone in the sling, and as he looks at Goliath and he's about to sling it, what does David say? David stated, not so much who he was, but he stated who he was serving. It's almost like David was stating his identity on his way to destroy Goliath. I believe it's around verse 40. 45, is it? Then David said to the Philistine, You came to me with a what? With a sword and a spear and with a shield. But I come to you in what? In the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. David stands there and says, Bang. I'm coming to you in the name of God. When Moses stood before Pharaoh, you remember God came to Moses, and God says, Moses, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And Pharaoh, and, and Moses says back to God, well, who shall I say sent me? On whose authority shall I say I'm here? And God says, you tell Pharaoh that I am that I am has what? I sent you. These stand to us as examples, as Bible characters of people who were sure under the God that they served and whom they were. And they stand to us, Daniel stands as an example of someone who lived in exile. You know, it's interesting, the characters in the Bible that we often relate to the most, Joseph and Daniel and Esther, were all exiles. And it relates to us as Christians living in a non-Christian world. Because so much of what we feel like is almost like the same feelings of being in exile in a country that's not ours. Living around people that all think differently to us. And these people all stand as exiles, as examples of people that were sure as to who they were. They may have struggled at times. 
Esther wasn't quite sure. Maybe she was a backslider. But there came the point in her experience where she stood in front of the king and she said, my people and I are under a death decree and we need you to help. She rediscovered her identity, though she had hid it when she stood in front of him to audition to be queen. There came the point where she remembered who she was and stood there. few chapters after she had said, if I perish, I what? Perish. You know when you're applying for a job today, or you're applying to university, college? You're encouraged to write out a personal what? Personal statement. Now, I don't know for those who may be slightly older in this room, if that was something you had to do when you were younger. Don't think so. I think it came in around the time I was going to uni or in college and school. And it was very weird. The teachers didn't quite know how to tell us how to go through the process. And especially as being from a British or English society where we don't really like talking about ourselves, at least not in good terms. We're quite good at being self-depreciating, deprecating or whatever the word is here in Britain. But you're, you're taught that you have to write a personal statement telling people who you are, what you stand for, or what you are, and how good you are, or whatever. And it's not that easy. It's not that easy. But in a church sense, when the preacher says, know what you believe, it's almost the same thing. What's your, what do you say about yourself as a Christian? My name is Adam Ramden. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. I go to church on Sabbath. I believe Jesus is coming again. I believe he died for our sins. What do you say about yourself and your faith experience? Are you comfortable with what you believe? With knowing your Bible? with believing in the Sabbath? Are you comfortable with what you know you should be and then what you are? Is there a consistency there? There's another point. When you're applying for a college or a job, you write your personal statement. I don't know if it's a, how, how, how new it might be, but I'd say there's a relatively new interview technique or question that you're likely to get asked in an interview today, whereas an interview for college, university, or an interview for a job. And the question would go something like this. Tell us, tell us, how would your friends describe you? What do your family or your friends say about you? It's kind of like the step up from the personal statement. Now it's just not what do you say about yourself, but tell us in your understanding what your friends say about you.
even more uncomfortable, would you say? It's not that new, though. It's not that new. But I just want to throw the question out there. What do others say about you? What do they say about you? You know, I travel and go to different countries in the world or different parts of Britain or wherever. I often get asked the question, hey, Adam, where'd you come from? Ethnically. And I always, I get asked the question so much, and you kind of get bored of the getting asked the question. So, it's like, oh, again. Okay, what do you think? And I always tend to just throw it back. And depending where I am in the globe or what ethnic community I'm in, the answers vary greatly. I don't know. Maybe the Lord's blessed me with a face that looks like nothing. When I lived in the United States of America, I would frequently get called Mexican, Colombian, Brazilian, and I used to really dislike and would stay away from going to Hispanic or Spanish churches in America. The reason being, I would walk in, and they would see me, and they'd be like, ah, he's Spanish. Hey, como esta, senor? Then I'd just be like, sorry, don't speak Spanish. And then you know that look that you get given, Tim, if you were to meet a fellow Nigerian who can't speak a word of whatever your language is, you would just look at them like, oh, oh, okay. You get that look. Now, if, if you can speak your native tongue, then obviously you never get that look. But the look you get from someone who's Spanish, who looks at me and I say, sorry, I don't speak Spanish, and they look at me and they're, they're convinced I am from South America, but I can't speak Spanish. I am one of those who thinks I'm too good to know the native tongue. So I just used to like, I'm not, I'm not Spanish. No, no, you must be. I'm not. I'm from England. No, 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 you're joking me. And the conversation would go like that. So I'm over there, they think I'm Spanish. Then there's other parts of the world where people will think that I have some Indian blood in me. Only ever once has someone actually said, hmm, you look like you've got some Mauritian in you. It's happened to me once in all my years. People have said that they think I come from Thailand, Malaysia. Then I frequently get, well, maybe you're from Israel or Jordan or Turkey or, or Egypt. And the list goes on. Jamaica, I don't know where that one came from. I've had that as well. When I go to South Africa, they're like, ah, you're a good, you're colored. That's the answers I get as to what people say or where I come from. But what do people say about you? Not so much where you come from ethnically, but what do people say about you? If I was to ask Clive right now, Clive, what's, what's your, what would the word be? 
what diet do you follow? Clive would say to me, Clive Pute, he would say, I am vegan. I know that's what he'd say. I've traveled with Clive on lineage filming. And I know that at the end of the day, we'll eat breakfast in the morning, and then we'll film all day. And frequently, we would just not eat all day. And just go and go and go and go and go because you've got to use sunlight while you've got it. You haven't got time to take an hour's break in the day. Go, 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 go. And at the end of the day, let's find somewhere to eat. So I know I've got to pull out my phone and I've got to find duh, 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 vegan places to eat in wherever. Because I know Clive's a vegan. He'll tell me he's a vegan. But then if you've ever hang around Clive longer enough to sit at the meal table with him, you'll also know that Clive is a vegan. And I would testify that he's a very stringent vegan or strict. Like, hey, Clive, look, there's nowhere else to eat. We're stuck here in Copenhagen. There's nowhere else to eat, Clive. We've got to go get pizza. Clive's not going to be like, okay, I'll get pizza. Clive's going to be like, okay, I'll just eat a salad. Because I know he's very, he's a proper vegan. Now, I may say sometimes, hey, you know, I kind of, kind of am a vegan. And Clive will start laughing now. Because while I am at home, while we don't go out and buy whatever else at home, when I travel, I'm a bit of a backslider. I call myself Flexi Vegan. Which a real vegan will just be like, you're just not a vegan. Because if you travel with me, then you would never, if you're out and, and you see, you're like, what do people say about you? You can say whatever you want about yourself. Clive could say he's vegan till he's blue in the face. But myself and the other guys that have traveled with him on lineage and others that know him, you would also stand there and say, yeah, yeah, Clive's a vegan. We know he is because we've seen it. So it's not just what he says about himself. It's verified by what others who have lived with and experienced would also then say about him. So what do others say about you? Not what you say about yourself. Out there on the sign, it says Manchester South Seventh-day Adventist Church. Services, da 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 Let's just suppose, for argument's sake, that when you bought your church sign, you, brought, you bought a blank white sheet of metal. And then you went round in the community and got 10 people from the community to come, and you gave them a marker pen and said, you write on this board who we are. I wonder what the church signs up and down the United Kingdom would say if they were labeled by the communities in the churches that we're located. Would they say Seventh-day Adventist? Bible-believing? Would they say that? Or would they just say, you take my parking? 
Like, what would they say about us? We can say whatever you want to say about ourselves, and we've been saying whatever we say about ourselves for the last 150 years. Forgetting that, well, what do they actually say about us? When you write your application form for your passport or whatever application form you may write down, it asks you, what is your religious affiliation? And let's just say there was a, a box that says Seventh-day Adventist, though there, there never is. You check that. If your friends were filling in your application form for you, what box would they mark? Christian? None? Other? What would they write down? Do they even know? If you went to your neighbor's house, I'm filling in this passport application or whatever, but, but could you just check, check it for me? I haven't got time. What would they write down? You see, we sit in our house, in our four walls, in our living room. We watch YouTube. We watch, you know, whatever we watch. But what are others saying about us? See, Daniel, in Daniel chapter 6, that verse we just read, Daniel in chapter 1 says, I purpose in my heart. But in Daniel chapter 6, at the age of 87, and he's only known this king for about one year. He hasn't known him for his whole life because it's been a change of empire. So he's only known him for about a year. And at the end of one year, the king looks down and says, Daniel, your God who you serve continually, he'll deliver you. And then when he goes to the, the, the stone in the morning and rolls back the stone, he says, Daniel, has your God whom you serve delivered you? The king testified of Daniel's faithfulness in Daniel chapter 6. Chapter 1, he testifies, I am purposing. Chapter 6, Daniel, your God, who you serve continually. How about our families? What would they say about us? Turn to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, you see, you know, an interview technique of asking you what your friends say about you is, is nothing new, actually. In fact, it originates with Jesus Christ. Amen? Jesus was the first one that ever came up with this technique. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, the Bible says that Jesus was there at a place called Caesarea Philippi. You don't know where that is? On a map, it's geographically speaking at the very northern tip of Israel. There's two Caesareas in Israel. One's on the coast. That's where Paul stood. I believe in Agrippa's palace, and testified to Jesus. But there's another Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi, which is in northern Israel. Today it's right on the border with, I believe that would be the border with um, Lebanon. And there in this place, and you, if you go to a tour of Israel, you can go there today. It's just kind of a, there's some caves up there and whatever. And the Bible says, and Jesus came to Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, saying, whom... Do men say that what? That I am. Jesus is asking for this almost communal sense of identity. What does the community, what do men say that I am? And what answer does he get given? Peter answers him in verse 14 and says, oh, so, it says so, sorry, it says, and they said, some say that you are who? John the Baptist. 
And some say you are Elijah, and others say that you are Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Okay, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah. But then Jesus looks back and he says, but who do you say that I am? The Bible says in verse 16, If you've got a red-letter Bible, you know it's not in red because it's Peter speaking. But these are profound words. Profound words. It says, And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the what? The Son of the living God. He says, Who do you say that I am? And here, for the first time in Scripture, Someone else testifies that Jesus is the Christ. He could have gone through his whole ministry, Jesus, and just said, I'm the Christ. About to feed the 5,000, by the way, I'm the Christ. About to heal the centurion's son, by, by the way, I'm the Christ. About to feed the 4,000, by the way, I am Christ. Just want to let you know, in case you missed out. No, he does all these miracles. Because you ask yourself the question, what has Peter seen at the time of Matthew 16 that he can say, you are the Christ? Well, if you just go back to the previous chapter or so, he's seen the 4,000 fed. The chapter before, he's seen the 5,000 fed. A few chapters before, (coughs) the centurion's son is healed. The woman is healed. The man who's born blind, is, uh, he, he can see. The man by the pool of Bethesda. All of these stories happen prior to this. And so when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? The disciples have all this evidence. They've seen all this evidence of who Jesus is. And Peter just instinctively doesn't have to scratch his head. He says, well, you're the Christ. You're the Christ. That's who you are. Jesus was employing this modern technique. What do your friends say about you, Jesus? Well, let me ask my friends. Let me ask them. And we'll find out what my friends say. Friends, who am I? Well, some say this and some. What what, what do you say? You're Messiah. Church, who do people say that you are? Who do people say you are? It's very important for you to be sure of your identity in Christ. It's very important for you to know what you believe. But if no one else verifies what you say, what does that say about your personal statement of faith? It's so private, it doesn't mean too much in the grand scheme of things. Bible-believing, truth-believing, Seventh-day Adventist. But if no one else will testify that of you, that maybe your faith is too private. When I was reading that book, The Insanity of God, he said persecution is is, is dependent on two things. Number one, someone has to believe in Jesus Christ. Number two, they believe in him enough to share it with someone else. 
And after they've believed in Jesus enough to share him with someone else, the persecution starts. Because the people they share him with will testify, oh, that's a Christian. It's so easy in the Western world to believe in Jesus and keep our belief so private, they just stay with ourselves. Partly because that reflects the reserve of the British culture that we live in. And sometimes as a Christian, it's just so easy to go along with that. Which is why we often pray in church, Lord, let my light shine. Because we're so silent. It's the only thing that could possibly maybe be a witness Who do men say that you are? Who do men say that you are? The message is not complicated. But I hope you're reflecting on you. And if your spiritual identity was open to the opinion of your neighbors, your family, or your friends... What would it be? I know we struggle. I know we all struggle with being bold or with being consistent. And wherever you may be in your struggle, we need to ask God to give us the grace and the humility and the boldness and the courage to be where we need to be. One of the stories I was reading in that book, The Insanity of God, that really stood out to me was about a Russian, I believe, he was a pastor. He lived in a village, and he started doing Bible studies. It was illegal, you couldn't do Bible studies. But one of the points that the book brings out is, the ability to share is not dependent on the political system you live under, it's dependent on your obedience to God. So he's sharing in his village with a few people. And people come, and the next week when they have the Bible study, more people come. And he gets to the point where in his house in the village, he has 150 people coming to a Bible study. That's illegal. Eventually, the local officials say, we've got to shut this down. So they, <laughs> they take him as a prisoner 1,000 miles away and lock him up in a Russian prison. And there he stays locked up for 17 years. His name was Dimitri. And there in prison, what he would do, every single morning, he would wake up, and, he, and the room was facing kind of eastward. And he would wake up, and then he would look out his cell and the sun would be coming through the windows, and he would stand there every morning, and he would raise his arms like this, and he would sing the same song every day. People would throw their food at him. People would try and drown him out. People would even throw their own human waste at him, making fun of him. 17 years, every day, he would get beaten by the guards. He would get told to stop, wake up the next day, see the rising sun, 
raise his hands and sing to Jesus again. One day he was in the prison's uh, yard and he saw a pencil and a piece of paper on the ground. He grabbed it and put it in his pocket. And when he got back to his cell, he wrote down every single Bible text he could remember by memory on that piece of paper. And then he stuck it on the pipe that was in the corner of his cell. He says, as an offering to God, prison guard saw that, found that, beat him again. Next morning, he would sing songs. Ridicule, persecution. The only Christian in a prison of 1,500 hardened criminals. The prisons out there aren't like us. Finally, 17 years, the guards have had enough. And they've got an execution place for him lined up in the yard. He raises up one morning, raises his arms, sings to Jesus again. The guards come, they beat him, and they drag him out his cell. And the prisoners know for some reason that this time is different to all the other beatings he's gotten. And this may be the end of his life. And then something remarkable happens. Who do men say that you are? Who did those prisoners... What was their testimony of him? You see, he could have said all day long, I'm a Christian. But what would those 1,499 other prisoners have said about him? Well, on that morning when he was going to be executed, as they're dragging him down the corridor, bloody beaten. I don't know what inspired them. Maybe it was the Holy Spirit. Simultaneously, he recounts the story of how 1,500 prisoners... All left their cell, put their arms up to the rising sun in the east. Atheists, criminals, murderers, killers. And they all sang in unison the song that he sang every single morning. The prison guard stopped. They stopped. He never got dra dragged out to the courtyard that morning, and he never got executed that morning. You see, those 1,500 other prisoners, if you ask them, who's Dimitri? They would have said without a shadow of a doubt, he's a Christian. He's a Christian. And on the morning when he was going to be killed, they all unanimously testified by singing his song. This man's Christian. Seeing the impact that he had on the rest of the prisoners, it wasn't long before he was soon released. Praise the Lord. And got to go home, live out the rest of his life. Who do men say that you are? Who do men say that I am?
I pray the testimony that we aim to say about ourselves would be repeated by others that know us as well. That there's a consistency. There's a consistency. If people had to sing a song for you, what song would they sing? Let's bow our heads as we close with prayer. Father in heaven, we pause to thank you for the privilege we have to be called children of yours today. Lord, we call ourselves Christian. We call ourselves Seventh-day Adventist. But what does the he or the she on the street that we live on, or the he or the she in our workplace, or the he or the she in our family, what do they say about us? Whom do they say we are? Lord, I pray that you'd be with us where we're weak, where we lack boldness or courage. And Lord, I pray that others may testify of us. Lord, you know each one of our hearts here. Lord, you know what our struggles are. In a few moments of silence right here, Lord, as we commit to you, Lord, hear our prayers. Lord, help us where we're weak. Lord, lift us up when we fall down. Bless us, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.